here we are back in uh, our study here in Acts as we make our way through. And let me just remind you of how just the, the progression of, of where we've come to. Um, of course, the, the promise of the Spirit being poured out. Uh, we saw on the day of Pentecost, the, the Spirit of God was poured out in a tremendous way. And uh, this led to a great uh, in-gathering of souls. Peter preached the gospel. 3,000 were added to the church. Um, as, as things were going on, the, the healing of the lame man once again gave opportunity for others to be added to the church. So as we pointed out, everything was going along you know, fairly smoothly. The, the message was going out um, unopposed, but then suddenly they came up against the opposition of the leadership in Jerusalem. So we looked at that last time, how these uh, outside forces were, were pushing against uh, the church and trying to prevent the gospel from going forward. So today, um, we come to the first internal encounter with, uh, with sin and with Satan, and, and really the first internal attempt to derail uh, what God was doing. The story is important because it shows us that the enemy doesn't only attack the church from the outside, but he also seeks to bring it down from within. Uh, as a matter of fact, that has been um, his uh, most effective means uh, throughout history of hindering the mission of the church. And so we see that here. Notice uh, here at this point, it's not an attempt to smuggle in false teaching. That That is going to happen as we go along in the story. And this has been something that has occurred over and over again in history. But but rather here, this is an attempt to get dishonest, morally compromised people in position within the church. So it's, a, it's an effort to compromise the purity of the church. And the lesson in the story is that purity and spiritual power go hand in hand. So in other words, if spiritual power is to be maintained and spiritual power is necessary for the for the progress of the church, then there has to be purity. Now, one of the great tragedies of church history is the church's failure to follow God's instruction in dealing with sin. And, and because of that failure, the church has been plagued by scandals and it's been hindered uh, in its objective of getting the gospel to the nations. I mean, if you just read church history, you, you realize how uh, big of a failure uh, there has been in that area. One uh, scandal after another over the long history of the church. But what it shows us is that church leaders must be proactive in dealing with sin in the church, just like we as individuals have to be proactive in dealing uh, with sin in our own lives. And the, the beautiful thing we see here is that Peter... Uh, is proactive. Peter does uh, the the difficult thing, and he confronts this attempt uh, at bringing in compromise into the church. So we're going to look at that. There are five things in the text that I want us to see. 
But the first thing before we get to those five things is let's talk uh, for just a minute about the severity of this judgment, because I think everybody who reads the story uh, thinks to themselves like, wow, that is pretty intense. I mean, you know, they just were kind of lying a little bit and they're struck dead. What, what is that all about? And obviously, thankfully, that doesn't happen today, right? Because, uh, you know, churches would be even smaller uh, than they are today if that were the case. So, so what is this? Why, why such a severe judgment? Well, it seems that we have this pattern in, in the scripture that whenever God does a, a new thing, that initially what he does is he um, sets a high standard that enforces it through a rather severe judgment that will remind future generations of how serious God is about his word. So we have other uh, incidents in scripture that are similar to this one. And each time they happen at a, um, at a moment when there's a fresh work of God uh, being introduced. So, for example, uh, back in the time of Moses, back at the time of the uh, inauguration of the covenant, the, the tabernacle has been built and the priesthood has been established and the sacrifices are just starting, literally. I mean, the, the whole thing is just getting underway. And uh, two of the sons of Aaron, their names are Nadab and Abihu, uh, I think it's uh, Leviticus 9 where this is recorded, 9 or 10. And um, what you have is it says that they offer strange fire to the Lord and the Lord sends a fire to devour them. So here they are, they're the priests, they're offering a sacrifice, but it's unacceptable to God because of uh, there's, it's mingled with their own sin and, and God judges them and consumes them. And this is, uh, again, it's a very severe and seemingly harsh thing. And Aaron is over, overcome with grief uh, over this. And, and we don't see this kind of thing happening again until we come to another sort of a milestone where Joshua takes over for um, Moses and they enter the promised land. And there's the story of this man, Achan, who uh, sins, and there's a, a severe judgment that is, is brought upon him. And then a bit later on in their history, kind of another milestone where David, uh, with David, God is kind of renewing the covenant. There's the Mosaic covenant, then there's the Davidic covenant. So it, it's like a fresh start. And maybe you remember the story where David is, um, he's transporting the ark, and it's all this you know, great celebration in this time of worship and the ark is being moved from one place to another. And uh, as it's being moved on a cart, uh, the cart hits a bump in the road. The ark uh, almost falls over. This man Uzzah reaches up to, to keep it from falling and God strikes him dead. And David's like, what, why? What, what, is, what does this mean? And um, but the reality was David was not following God's instruction. The ark was not to be moved that way. So once again, though, it's, it's a moment where God is setting a high standard. So that's what we have here when we come to this story here in Acts. The church is new. Uh, 
things are just getting underway. And so here we see that God uh, sets the standard. Now, like I said, obviously he hasn't enforced this throughout the history of the church. But what we need to know is that uh, God hasn't changed his mind. So even though he doesn't enforce it in this way, the standard is still the same. So uh, sin in the church is not, uh, you know, God's going to deal with it at, at some time or another. That is something that we need to know. So having got that covered, let's move on. And I, I want us now to look at the five things here uh, in the text about purity and power. So number one, Satan will always try to find a way into the church. Now you might say, well, why are you talking about Satan? Because this, what do you mean Satan? This is, uh, this is Ananias and Sapphira. But remember what Peter asked Ananias. He said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? So you see behind the scenes, Peter can see that the devil was at work. Now, honestly, I doubt that Ananias knew that. I don't think Ananias made a covenant with the devil and said, hey, all right, I'll be your agent. Let me get inside the church. No, but the devil comes along and he suggests to Ananias, you know, you can, you can go in and you can look really good, but you don't have to give all the money. And so there's a conspiracy that Ananias and Sapphira develop, but it's one that's been inspired by Satan because Peter sees behind that Satan is trying to make an inroad into the church. So here, let's get this guy in a place of position in the church. He's compromised. He's hypocritical. And let's use him to, to try to derail what's happening. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that this kind of thing happens because Jesus warned us that this would happen. Paul the Apostle told us this would happen. Uh, Jude wrote about these kinds of things happening. So let me remind you of what they said. Jesus warned in the parable of the wheat and the tares. He said this. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. So that's the parable. Jesus then gives the uh, interpretation. He said, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. So Jesus tells us that there are going to be attempts by the devil to get his people into the church. Paul, when he was speaking to the Ephesian elders at the end of his ministry there in Ephesus, he said this. He said, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. And then Jude wrote, contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints, for certain men have crept in unnoticed ungodly men. So Jude says by the time he writes that these ungodly men have already crept into the church. The reality is not everyone who seeks to serve in the church is genuinely seeking to serve God. And 
like I also said, they're, they're not necessarily knowingly serving the devil, but they are serving the devil. Because if, if a person is self-serving and not genuinely God-serving, then whether they know it or not, they become an instrument of Satan to try to in some way hinder or derail the work that God wants to do. So that's the first thing we need to note. Secondly, sin must never be accommodated or tolerated in the church. It must be dealt with swiftly and decisively. Now, obviously, you know, there is sin in the church, right? And, um, but it, it should be sin that is, um, uh, the, the, the leadership, you know, should, should be unaware of it if it's not dealt with. Now, you obviously can't deal with stuff that you don't know about. But once it becomes known, then it must be dealt with. But there is a, a temptation not to deal with it because of the difficulty. You know, it, th- there are challenges when it comes to these kinds of things. Um, you know, confrontation isn't uh, an enjoyable thing for, for many people. It, it's a rather unpleasant thing. And sometimes because of the unpleasantness of it, uh, some people are just going to say, you know, I don't want to deal with it. They're just going to, you know, kind of turn a blind eye to it. But know this, if we turn a blind eye to it, it's, it's only a matter of time before that sin starts to take its toll on the, the life of, of the church. So we need to be courageous men like Peter was in this situation. You know, it, it would have been much easier for Peter to just say, well, you know, let's just, we'll, we'll take, yeah, you know, he, he might have knew what was really going on, but he could have just said, well, you know, we won't address that. We'll just let him give the offering and then God will deal with them later. We won't worry about it. But, but Peter doesn't do that. He takes the initiative and he, um, you know, he confronts Ananias and then eventually Sapphira here. So confrontation is unpleasant. And because of that, uh, sometimes sin goes undealt within the church. Uh, another reason why it's not so easy to deal with it is because those who have to deal with sin in the church uh, sometimes are misjudged and actually, um, you know, considered to be the, the bad guy rather than the person that has sinned. I've known of situations where a pastor has sinned and sinned seriously and grievously and has had to be removed from the position of pastoring. And yet the people sometimes are upset with the ones who removed them rather than the pastor. And I have seen this happen several times over. People say, well, why not just forgive him and move on? I mean, after all, we all sin. And, uh, you know, you sure seem to have a lack of grace and, and that sort of thing. And so because that is a very real uh, possibility, um, you know, sometimes there's a, there's a hesitancy. There's a reluctancy to deal with these kinds of things. And, you know, also another reason sometimes is because the, the people that are involved in the problems, uh, you might have a friendship with them. You might have a close relationship. They could even be your family members. These things happen in church. 
And so because of that, there's, there's, you know, an unwillingness to deal with it. But it has to be dealt with. Sin must never be accommodated or tolerated in the church. Once it becomes known that there is a sinful situation, it, it has to be dealt with uh, swiftly and decisively. And swift and decisive judgment is a good thing because it produces the fear of God in a church. And the fear of God is necessary to, to prevent more sin from rising up. Now, notice here, as we look at the story, as we just kind of go back over it really quickly here, as, you know, so Peter deals with Ananias. Why have you let Satan fill your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Um, and then he, you know, addresses the actual issue here of um, what they did. You know, they saw that, that this man, Joseph, or his name became Barnabas, that he sold a piece of land. He gave it. Uh, obviously, this was something that people were really blessed by. And, and you know, it, it gave Barnabas, who was a humble man and a sincere man, it gave him recognition among people that, you know, he was a godly man. So Ananias says, well, I want that same recognition, except I don't want to really, you know, give all my money. But Peter says, well, you know, it was in your power to begin with. Nobody asked you to give anything. But he conspired, and so Peter addresses it. And Ananias, hearing these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Now, three hours later, his wife comes in. She doesn't know what's happened. Verse 8, Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Peter said, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out. And then immediately she fell down at his feet and also breathed her last. The young men came in, found her dead, carrying her out, buried her by her husband. Verse 11, so great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. So you see, when sin is dealt with swiftly and decisively, it produces fear of God in the church. If there's, if there's anything that the 21st century church could use a serious dose of, that is the fear of God. Now, the fear of God is not this thing where we walk around, you know, just living in a state of condemnation and uncertainty about our salvation. And, oh, we're just so afraid that God is going to just, you know, punish us any moment for our failures. That's not the fear of God. That's an, an unhealthy and an incorrect uh, understanding of the fear of God, if that's what you think about it. The fear of God in the biblical sense is a, a respect and a reverence for God that causes one to shudder at the thought of displeasing or dishonoring him. The fear of God says, you know, I love God so much, I fear uh, offending him. And God's not easily offended. So like I said, it's not like we have to walk around on eggshells because, you know, I fear God, so I better watch out because a lightning bolt could hit me any time. It's not that kind of a thing, but it's this, it's this healthy respect that says, you know, I don't want to do anything that would grieve God, offend my Lord, break the heart of my Savior, uh, give people the wrong impression about who God is. That's what the fear of God is about. C.H. Spurgeon, the great Victorian preacher, he said this. 
He said, there is a holy fear which must not be banished from the church. There is a sacred anxiety which puts us to the question and examines us whether we be in the faith, and it is not to be disdained. There is a kind of fear which we have need to cultivate, for it leads to repentance and confession of sin, to aspirations after holiness, and to the utter rejection of all self-complacency and self-conceit. There's a healthy fear of God. You know, it's good for us to be, uh, you know, at times concerned that, you know, maybe we're not right with the Lord. It's good for me to uh, analyze myself. It's good for me to evaluate. It's good for me to think about, is my life really pleasing God? And if it's not, where do things need to change? That's a healthy thing. We live in a time where I think in some cases we we have an, an emphasis on the love of God, which I'm certainly happy about that. But we, we can't emphasize that to the exclusion of the fact that God is to be feared. And, and I do think that in some cases that is the attitude these days. You know, people are so um, committed to a proclamation of the love of God that they've actually gone to the point of saying that God is not even a judge. And the pictures of God being a judge in scripture were misunderstandings of the nature of God uh, because God's really not like that. No, God is just love. But this is just a selective um, approach to looking at what the scriptures say. God is love. Yes, he is love. That's his essence. But he's also righteous and he's holy and he calls us to be righteous and holy as well as his people. So a healthy uh, fear of God is, is the, the byproduct of having sin dealt with. People realize, whoa, this is serious stuff. I, I don't want to be engaged in that. I don't want to be tripped up in those kinds of things. Fourthly, we see here that purity. And when I'm talking about purity, which, you know, the message today is purity and power, Purity is, is not simply, and I say this because a lot of times when we think of purity, we think of it in a, like a sexual context. Purity is bigger than that. It's what we're really talking about here is righteous living. So, you know, there's no sexual immorality here, but there's impurity. Impurity in what way? Well, the hearts of these people are impure. They're, they're hypocritical. They're dishonest. They're not uh, truthful. They're, uh, they have no integrity. So that, that's the kind of impurity that we're talking about. And that kind of impurity will hinder the work of God. So purity, righteous living, uh, accompanies a true work of God or, or true spiritual power is going to be accompanied by purity. So in other words, if, if we expect God to be working uh, among us powerfully, then we have to understand that that's going to happen in an environment of, of purity. And we see that here. So great fear fell upon them. And notice verse 12, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. 
And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So you see, there's power. The power is connected back to the fact that the purity was restored, or it actually, they never allowed it to to take uh, hold there. Um, You know, people often ask me, and as a matter of fact, uh, just last week, somebody asked me this question. Uh, People often ask, why does the church seem to lack power these days? And could it be that it has to do with this issue of purity? Could it be that there's just been so much sin that has been uh, allowed into the church that we have lost uh, the edge? It, it very well could be the case. And so I can't you know, control what other people are doing necessarily. I can. I need to deal with issues of my own life, and then as a person in a position of, uh, you know, pastoral leadership, I have to deal with those things that that I become aware of. Um, but it very well could be the case that this is the problem. And like I said in the beginning, this has been a problem throughout the the long history of the church. I mean, it is, it is just astounding, the things that have been allowed to go on in the church throughout its long history. And, and even to today, um, you know, some of the things that uh, we hear happening in churches, you think, man, that is, you know, it's kind of like Paul said to the Corinthians, he rebuked them and he said, you know, there are things that you're doing that the pagans would blush at. And you know, it's true sometimes in the church as well. So if we're going to have God's power among us, then we have got to do our part personally and collectively to make sure that there is purity among us. Because as we see, purity and power bring awe, respect, and purity and power result in the gospel going forth effectively and people's lives being changed. Look at what we read here. Verse 13, yet none of the rest dared join them. That's awe. So from that, and he's talking about the outside community. The outside community is looking on and they're, they're in awe. They heard about this thing where this couple tried to you know, pull off this deal like they were doing something super spiritual and they were being hypocritical and they were struck dead. People heard about that and they said, whoa, <laughs> they dared not join themselves to that. So they recognized something there. There was awe. And then the next part of the verse says, but the people esteemed them highly. So there was a, a respect Has the church lost respect in the culture today? I think that it has in some degree, but it doesn't have to. We can still have the respect of the world around us if we're living the way God called us to live. You see, that's a huge amount of how we 
regain and, and maintain that respect. And then as there is that purity and the power that flows from it, people are going to be brought into the kingdom. That's what was happening. So people were being saved because the power of God was at work and the word was going forth in power. Now, that was the fifth point, if you're taking notes there. So as, as we come to our conclusion, we are living, as you know, in wicked, wicked times. Um, but our primary concern should not be with the wickedness in the world, but rather the sin and the unrighteousness in the church. Now, this is where we, we have to really be careful because, you know, a, a lot of times as we, we think about the prevailing wickedness in the culture, we in the church, we have a tendency to point to the, the places that we, we consider to be the sources of this wickedness, you know, um, we sometimes here, here we are in California, sometimes, you know, we're pointing to, you know, Sacramento, uh, San Francisco, you know, these places, this is the, the problems lie there with the politicians and all that. Um, yeah, but that, that's, you know, I'm not going to dispute that, but I'm going to say this, that's not really what, what we are to be about or, you know, we might take it further and we might take it to Washington, D.C., or we might take it to Hollywood, or we might take it to New York City. You know, that, that we tend to do that. You know, all this wickedness that's being promoted by, but you know, what we are supposed to do is we are to, to make sure that the unrighteousness in the church is dealt with. You see, we cannot necessarily do much about the wickedness in the world, but we must deal with sin in the church. And, and oftentimes this is the problem. This is, and this is why the world's looking on and thinking, you know, we are a bunch of hypocrites because we are condemning and criticizing everybody else out there. But everybody knows very well that we've got the same stuff going on right in our midst and we're not dealing with it. So we can't do that. We've got to stop doing that. This is exactly what Paul told the believers in Corinth. Listen to what he said. Chapter 5, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians. He said, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean the sexually immoral people of the world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside the church? Do you not judge those who are inside the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from among yourselves the evil person. You see, that's the priority. Paul says, you know, that the, those people out there, that's God's, he, he's the judge. He's, he's going to deal with that. But when you have people in the church, when you have people in church leadership who are guilty of these kinds of things, whether it be sexual immorality or covetousness or idolatry or, you know, reviler or drunkard or extortioner, he says, no, this is the problem. 
So we have got to deal with our own issues. We, we've, got to, we, we've got to deal with the, the sin in our own midst. We've got to deal with the sin in our own hearts. Now, here's the question. Are you accommodating or tolerating sin in your own life? Are you making room for sin? Are you making excuses for sin? Have you become so calloused that you're actually blinded to the sin that you're involved in? You know, this is what happens with sin. Uh, Hebrews chapter three refers to the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceptive. It fools us. And you know, there are people who are in sin and they they're, they're no longer even able to recognize that that's the case. You know, I can think of, of, of people who, you know, go on as though, you know, praise God, hallelujah, just loving Jesus and literally hating their brother, hating them, wishing them evil, wishing them harm. And, you know, but they can't see it. I mean, they're praising the Lord. They, they, don't, they don't even recognize what's happened. That's what, that's what sin does. That can happen to us. And so we have to, we really have to do what David said. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my ways. See if there be any wicked way in me. And Lord, lead me in the way everlasting. Forgive me and, and bring me out of this. So if, if we personally, are tolerating sin in our lives. And, and listen, this is the place we start. You know, we, we tend to, you're talking about, yeah, you know, sin in the church and sin in people's lives. And isn't our natural tendency to think, oh yeah, yep, right over there. There it is. I know that sinner. I know what that guy's doing. You know, don't do that. <laughs> Take that finger and point it right at yourself and just say, okay, wait, what about me? Because that's what we're talking about here. That's where we, we, we must start there. You know, Jesus put it so um, humorously, really, when he said, you know, how is it that you have a plank in your eye, like a, you know, literally like a four by four, um, how is it that you have a plank in your eye and, and you're going to try to get the speck out of your brother's eye? He says, no, no, no. First, get the plank out of your own eye then you can help your brother get the speck out of his eye. <laughs> but we, we, we always want to get the speck out. But you know, when you got a plank in your eye, you can't even get close enough to your brother to get the speck out because you got a plank in your eye. So we're not, we're not to do that. But even, you know, that's the, that's the personal thing. But remember this too, that your sin doesn't just affect you. You see, Peter understood and the devil understood, if I can just get these people in there, I can mess up the whole thing. That's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to mess up the whole thing. Because your sin doesn't just affect you. It can affect the entire work that God is doing. Remember, we referred to Achan earlier, uh, back in the time of Joshua. And what happened there? Well, here's a guy who uh, 
you know, they're, they're going to go into Jericho. Now God's taking them into the promised land. They're starting with Jericho. God says, everything in Jericho belongs to me. It's all dedicated to me. Nobody's to take anything for themselves. But this guy, Achan, he sees this uh, Babylonian garment and this wedge of gold, and he steals it. He takes it for himself, and he digs a hole in his, uh, the floor of his tent, and he buries it there. And he thinks, no problem. Nobody knows. And so then they go uh, to continue in their conquest of the land. They go now next to the city of Ai. And the city of Ai is much smaller than uh, Jericho. So their reasoning is, you know, Jericho, we took that, no problem. AI is not going to be a problem. We don't even need that many troops. Let's just send 3,000. We don't really need the, the whole army to go out here. And they went to AI and they were defeated. 36 men died. And Joshua comes back and he's on his face before God. And he's like, Lord, I can't believe it. You let us down. We were trusting you. You told us to go and take the land. And now look what's happened. We were defeated. And now all the nations are going to surround us and they're going to drive us out and destroy us. And, you know, Joshua's going on and on like this. And the Lord says, Joshua, get up. Joshua, there's sin in the camp. And then Achan was eventually exposed and dealt with. But the point is, Achan's sin affected the whole nation and affected the whole mission. The mission couldn't go forward because of that sin. And so, you know, that can be true in the church too. The mission can't go forward because the sin is holding it back. So so we have got to make sure personally, we must judge sin swiftly and decisively. And that's true for you and for me individually as Christians. It's true for me and our pastoral staff here as we think of it more in a congregational level. But but it's true across the board in the church. If the church is going to have power to fulfill the mission that God has called us to fulfill, then we have to have purity. There has to be purity, not perfection, but purity in the sense that we're not going to let known sin go unaddressed in our midst, whether it be known sin in ourselves personally or known sin in a congregation We have to deal with it. And they dealt with it. And they thwarted the devil's efforts to derail what God was doing. And the work just not only continued on, but it escalated into more power and more uh, conversions. and, And the gospel kept advancing. That's what's at stake, the advancement of the gospel. So God help us to be pure, to live righteously, to truly fear God so that his power might remain among us. So Lord, we pray for that today. We pray, Lord, for our own lives here today. Lord, search our hearts 
And Lord, we know that we have a, uh, a strange ability to kind of overlook our own condition. So Lord, help us not to do that. But you search our hearts. Try us. Know our way. Lord, if there's something in us that's unpleasing to you, Lord, help us to see it and to turn from it. And Lord, guard and keep us from the evil one. Lord, we, we see the enemies uh, always looking for a foot in the door. And Lord, we pray for your protection here. Help us, Lord, when necessary to have the courage to deal with the sin issue, that the purity might be retained and the power might be maintained. So that's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.